Hello, and welcome to Transplaner RPG. We are an all-transgender, person-of-color-led, dark fantasy actual play channel featuring homebrew stories that center non-colonial, anti-orientalist world-building and campaigns about queerness, grief, hope, and the power of love. Godkiller First Blood is a 16-part prestige podcast miniseries that follows a mythic, violent, and transformative tale about a single mortal rising against the challenges of the divine. Tonight, your god is me, C. Thomas, and my godkiller, well, not my godkiller, but my speaker of the above, is Connie Chong. And with that out of the way, here are content warnings for this episode. Content warnings for this episode may include fantasy violence, classism, religious imagery, death of loved ones, grief, ghosts, alcohol and drug use, and brief references to cannibalism, starvation, funerals, and carceral oppression. The Citadel is a vast, jagged spear thrust into the beating heart of the cradle. 5,000 feet tall and 1,000 feet wide at its base, the outer walls of this skyscraper are hewn from shining glass and blackened marble. From a distance, it looks like an obsidian needle, an inky gash against the dull gray canvas of our desiccated sky. Fanning out from the base of the citadel are the four earthly districts, separated into crowded wedges that extend into an infinite cityscape. This city crawls to the edges of the world until it too falls away into the subsuming ocean. The 199th floor of the Citadel is a vast circular space with hardwood floors, walls of pebbled sandstone, and a domed ceiling. Bookshelves line the perimeter, crowded with tomes, scrolls, and grimoires. There's a spotless kitchenette, an office with a mahogany desk, and a canopy bed of bamboo and varnished elmwood. But the most eye-catching feature of floor 199 is the balcony and the speaker upon it. The balcony itself is several dozen feet wide, with tiered steps that form a multi-level hanging garden. An emerald stream tumbles from tier to tier, terminating at a pool at the bottom level dotted with lily pads and lotus flowers. Flowering trees and weathered limestones decorate the balcony garden, filling the air with the fresh scent of pollen, algae, and nectar. It is within this garden, outside floor 199, that we find you, Antigone. What do you look like, and what are you doing in advance of this afternoon's council meeting? Kneeling beside the waterfall on the top level of this balcony garden is Antigone. The speaker of the above, servant to the witness, the tongue of truth. Beautiful would be an insulting way to describe her. Uh, Antigone's light brown skin is as soft as the petal of an orchid. Her hair is blacker than midnight shaved on the sides and then braided in these twin plates down her back. Her eyes are as black as her hair, and they're currently closed as she grasps a thin stick of incense between her palms and prays. The smoke from the incense coils in front of a sharp and studious face, a face that has only known one thing in its entire life. Devotion. Antigone is wearing her usual speaker uniform, a robe as white as snow, embroidered with thick lines of golden silk, and these red tassels hang from her collars and lapels like strings of blood. 
A deep red sash also hangs from her waist, and dotting every part of her robe, woven into the golden embroidery, the snow white fabric, and even the crimson tassels all across her, are repeating motifs of eyes. These wide, staring, golden eyes, the eyes of the witness, Antigone's god. And this prayer that Antigone is whispering to the incense smoke under her breath is not a daily prayer, it's actually a very special ritual prayer, which is three hours long from beginning to end, completely memorized by herself, to be recited on the third day before her pilgrimage to the northern dead zone so she can cleanse the eyes of the witness. And as a result, Antigone is kind of cutting the council meeting uh, a little bit close, but she doesn't necessarily look too worried. And behind her, as always, constantly there like her shadow, is her champion, Eos. Eos is this massive woman with a muscular, dependable build, though the exact muscles that she boasts are currently hidden underneath her very impressive armor. Champion Eos is wearing this mixture of obsidian plate and bronze chain, woven in a classic Chinese heavy infantry style. And this blood-red cloth armor pads her arms and thighs for extra mobility and protection, and a furred cape hangs from her double pauldrons as red as blood, cinched at the shoulders by a pair of golden lion's head-shaped buckles. And Champion Eos's face is hard and weathered, but not old. She's actually only a few years Antigone Senior, even though Eos's skin is as scarred as Antigone's is unblemished. And in particular, a jagged scar cuts through her right eye, bisecting the dark eyebrow above it. And Eos's hair is black and shaved on the sides just like Antigone, but she keeps it short in the back and in the front. And finally, strapped to Eos's back is this massive, straight-edged greatsword, the blade sheathed within a dark scabbard. And there are repeating motifs of eyes across Eos's armor as well, but significantly fewer than Antigone. In particular, the cross guard of the sword, the greatsword, glimmers with a bronze eye, staring endlessly out at the horizon of the infinite city. Mmm. Not only does this eye on the cross guard stare out across this infinite city, it also stares at you. For the last three hours, 120 minutes, 10,800 seconds that you've been in prayer, you've felt Eos behind you in the way that you can feel a rolling thunderstorm eking out in the sky behind you, closer and closer and closer. And, and as you finish your prayer... You know she has something that she wants to say to you. What kind of dynamic do we glimpse between the two of you? Oh, that's easy. Complete, unthinking, unquestioning devotion. Loyal does not begin to describe Eos. Eos is more loyal than a dog. She is more loyal than heat that radiates off the sun. Uh, and she is there wherever Antigone goes as well, always a half step behind. And Antigone is aware of this. Uh, she's perpetually aware of this radiant shadow behind her. And there's a moment as Antigone like whispers that last word of the prayer out and quirks an eye behind her shoulder, like kind of in the direction of Eos, and she goes... Eos, I can feel you staring at me, you know. What is it? 
My Lady Antigone, I simply wanted to remind you that the council meeting begins in ten minutes. I'm aware, Eos, but the cleansing of the witness's eyes is more important than yet another hapless discussion about the barter ratios between grain and cattle. I'm sure it's fine if we're a few minutes late. Of course, my lady. I have not wished to disturb your worship, but I have recently received word of a different agenda for today's convergence. Yes? A apparently there is some sort of missing god that demands the Six's full attention. Oh, please, Eos. Gods go missing every day. This is the cradle. Cannibalism proliferates the fringe, and dead zones menace the outer cities on a regular basis. If we stopped the wheels of worship for every single prayer that goes astray, we'd never get anything done. My ladyship, a major arcana god has gone missing. At that, Antigone fully lowers the incense stick and turns her entire upper torso to face Eos, who looks very much like a bashful schoolboy who broke a window. Why wasn't I informed of this sooner, Eos? My ladyship, you gave explicit instructions not to be bothered by any matter while praying, and the news came while you were praying, but now you're done praying, so... Oh, Eos, my sweet, devoted champion. Which god? The Citadel's Council Hall is a place of work and worship. It commands the centralmost position in the cradle and is considered the seat of heaven, the throne of gods, the eye of the storm. There are few mortals who are allowed beyond its obsidian and oak doors. The speakers, of course the mortal instruments who serve their gods and enact the will of the six. They are, of course, followed by their mortal champions, who wield their strength in whatever direction their speakers choose. These speakers and their champions of the six districts rule over the cradle with immutable power and irrefutable magic. The council hall is an oblong room with walls that stretch nearly 60 feet high, curving upward to jab at the sky like a broken rib. Hanging in the sky above them, through the open roof, is the skeletal mass of this world's sun, the glowing and irradiated corpse of the star. Her bones hang over this assemblage, casting the room in a warm, iridescent glow. You enter this meeting late, Antigone. You can already hear the low hum of bickering behind the solid oak doors. Is there anything you do or say to prepare yourself before you push them open? The devil, Eos? Really? The devil? Gods above and below. <sighs> and Antigone brushes those twin plates of her braids in front of her shoulders, closes her eyes, deep breath in, deep breath out, in front of the council doors, and casts a stern look in Eos's direction, who now has graduated from a schoolboy that's broken a window to a schoolboy that's tripped a nun and broken four of her ribs. And then Antigone pushes her hands forward, and the doors open. As the doors swing open, please roll a d6 for me, and we'll decide which of the speakers is currently talking. Ah! Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, that is a one. Incredible. 
you catch the tail end of a sentence that sounds something like, would be her responsibility more so than any of ours. And your eyes fall upon King Quintus Morius III, the Speaker of Swords, Servant of the Emperor, and the Empress. It's rather unsurprising to you, I think, that this is the voice that you heard, even through the doors, as King Morius is a stout, well-muscled man with a brown cape and a jeweled crown that seems to be disguising a rapidly balding head. Your eyes kind of flash over this silk cape pinned to his breast and this golden scepter that lies at rest against the throne-like chair that he's sitting in. Eos, you recall, had once impudently noted that the scepter looked a little bit more like a cudgel, and that observation had been hard to shake once it was made. As you push open these oak doors, all eyes in the room fall upon you, and King Quintus Morius's mustache shakes a little bit, and he goes, Ah, finally, Lady Antigone, you've decided to grace us with your presence. King Morius, as I am sure you and the other six are aware, I have an important ritual, a pilgrimage to prepare for, and that does cut into the beginning of our council meeting times, which, as I have often noted, could be a missive, more so than a meeting. Uh, And she, like, takes her seat that Eos sheepishly pulls out for her, sits down, and then it's pushed back in. At that, you hear another voice, kind of rattling low, like the clanging of bones against one another. Yes, I was just saying that this is not a decision that we could come to without Lady Antigone. And this voice belongs to none other than Pontiff Orseth Philios, the Speaker of Cups, servant of the Hierophant, who has turned nearly completely red in your absence. He's a small, hunched man with a frizzy halo of white hair draped in plain gray monk's robes, though his hood has been pulled back to reveal uh, wrinkled ears that resemble shriveled cabbage leaves, which seem to be trembling in contemptuous disgust. Behind him, you see his stoic and solid champion, Sir Holheim Brayless, a tall, limmy, freakishly muscular man with long brown hair shorn at his shoulders. Sir Brellis is staring wide at the back of his speaker's head as this conversation continues, and his eyes don't ever stray for it for the entirety of the meeting. Pontiff Philios, still kind of gasping and looking rather pleased to see you finally, shifts his weight back and forth and immediately turns his attention back to King Morius, as it seems that they were embroiled in some kind of argument before you came in. Mm. He says, It reeks of dull intent and pusillanimity to place this burden on a single member of council. Is it not your duty, King Morius, to protect the cradle from these angry ghosts? And as that last word kind of spits out angry ghosts, another voice, much smaller, ekes out from the shadows just to your left, where yet another speaker sits beside you. You have the fortune, or perhaps in your mind the misfortune, of sitting next to Professor Nightingale, the Speaker of Wands, Servant of the Magician. He leans to you and says, Oh, good. You've arrived just in time to watch them go to blows over you. Professor Nightingale is a gaunt, handsome man with long silver hair that drapes in a fashionably unkempt manner past their piercing blue eyes. 
They wear this low-cut tunic that reveals top surgery scars and currently have their feet propped up on the marble meeting table showing off tight leather pants. They look about as happy to see you as they always do, like a bored cat considering whether they want to eat the dove they've just caught or play with it a bit more before delivering the final blow. Behind them is their champion, Sir Deimos, a blue-haired, tattooed, moody woman who shoots a kind of sideways look at Eos before shifting their stance to show off the newest model of whatever auto-rifle Gale had made her that week. <laughs> Pontiff Phileos and King Morius coming to blows? What else is new? <laughs> How you right you are. Unfortunately, I think it might be rather serious this time. Yes, something about a decision made in my absence. I excuse me! King Morius and Pontifilius, I hate to interrupt your mm, very cogent discussion, but might I ask what choice the council is coming to? At that, it is neither King Morius or Pontifilius who answer you. But instead, you hear smooth tones of a feminine voice riding the ridges of the curved walls of this council room, like an angel singing to heaven. And it's Miss Dido Ellenfax who speaks the Speaker of Coin, Servant of the Wheel of Fortune, whom we call Lady Luck. Dido is a tall, busty woman with luscious golden curls that spill past her well-muscled shoulders. Today, she seems to have donned a slinky emerald dress cut low over her chest. And behind Dido is her champion, Lady Piamet Ajax, a brash and handsome red-haired woman who leans against a wickedly spiked spear far more casually than many other champions would dare. Dido offers you a small, charming wink and turns to address everyone in the room and says, Agreed, gentlemen, gentlemen, there is no need to argue over the particulars quite yet. There's a saying in my district about counting your dust before it turns to gold. And now that we've all arrived, I believe we can start this council meeting in earnest, no? Lady Antigone, we have much to catch you up on. Yes, yes, so I've heard... Something about the devil? And at that, all eyes turned toward the final speaker, who up until this point had been silent as the grave. Your eyes fix on Nix Pillindar Hartbloom, the speaker of the below, servant of judgment, whom we call judge, who says nothing, usually. Their hawk-like gaze is fixed on you in that kind of empty, dark way that occasionally makes you think that Z is trying to peer into your soul. They're an ageless kind of person, who looks like they could be 25 or 45. It's really hard to tell, nearly impossible. Fortunately, the two of you grew up together, and you can recall a time where Mix Heartbloom's eyes were not surrounded by those deep, dark bags, and a time where their hair wasn't so limp and decrepit, falling over their brow. Behind them is their champion Zir Zhang Shen, who shifts uncomfortably like a bored specter snagged on the iron-wrought fence of their own cemetery. She has short black hair and is littered with tattoos, scars, piercings, despite barely being out of adolescence. Her eyes are fixed just behind you, on Eos, or more likely Eos's greatsword, measuring it against the own gigantic, rather decrepit-looking axe strapped to her back. Pillandar sighs, feeling the gazes of all of the champions and all of the speakers finally rest upon them. And they pinch the bridge of their nose with their forefinger and their thumb, and finally speak. It has come to our attention that the increase of lost souls and ghosts seen in the last few years 
is not due to the volatility of the dried-up river, or due to an influx of dead zones, as we previously suspected. We now believe that it is caused by the prolonged absence of the devil. Oh. Oh. And how sure are we on these two points? One, that it is the devil's absence that is causing this proliferation of lost souls, as you put it, Mix Heartbloom. And two, that the devil is missing at all and not just off gallivanting on fringe districts doing God's knows what, as the devil is wont to do. At that, King Morius speaks up, this kind of booming laugh like cannon fire breaking across the council room. And as he laughs behind him, his champion, Sir Sloane Iscariot, a firm woman with strict dark eyes and short, dull gray hair, shifts back and forth. She is the perfect image of assorted attention, right hand held loosely on the hilt of her longsword buckler at her hip. For all you've seen of her in endless council meetings, you cannot recall a time ever seeing the woman smile, despite her king's boisterous and rather arrogant attitude. But gods above and below, you've seen her fight. But it's King Morius who speaks. I couldn't agree with you more, Lady Antigone. See, I'm glad that we waited for you to come into the hall. And at that, several of the speakers moan and lean back in their chairs, as it's rather obvious who started the council meeting before you had arrived. And he goes on to say, Do we really believe that a god of the major arcana, even one so contentious and malignant as the devil, would simply choose to abandon their own hunger? If he had, he'd starve. And if he was eaten by another god, well, that god would take on the responsibility of ferrying lost souls to uh, wherever they go at this point. And if he had been eaten by another god, there is no escaping the eyes of the witness. We would have known, we would have seen, we would have heard. To that, Pilindar raises those dark eyes and pins them on you in a sharp way, a direct way. Would you like to use the mortal move, feel someone or something out? Scream! My own moves being turned against me? That's right. Violence! Violence and perfect. That's right. <laughs> uh, yes, I would. Okay. Okay. So, when you try to feel out a person, place, or thing, say what you want clarity about and answer one. The GM will give you the clarity you seek, then answer the other. The two questions are, what feels welcoming on the surface? And what feels unnerving when I peer deeper? So the thing I want clarity about is, what the hell was up with that very direct stare from Pilandar? Like, I've known this person for a very long time. We grew up together in every sense of the word, really. So I feel like I know Pilandar's expression quite well, even though down in the below, they have turned into this kind of shriveled up wraith of a person. I can still read the expression in zero eyes. So I will answer what feels welcoming on the surface, which is that... Mix Heartbloom, Pilindar, has knowledge, context on this situation. I have a suspicion, please correct me if I'm wrong, C, but has knowledge of the situation beyond what even the rest of the six might. So, like, they have, like, a little bit mm. of extra context. And that's mm -hmm. welcoming to Antigone as a steward of knowledge. Mm. Yes, as a steward of knowledge, this idea that Pilandar does have information for you, the questions that must be rattling around your brain since Eos told you the news not ten minutes ago. Pilandar does have the answers. 
but what feels unnerving as you peer deeper into those dark eyes. Z is scared. <gasps> you don't think you've ever seen Pillindar Heartbloom afraid. But as you peer into those inky depths of their eyes, you, you know what it is. They allow you to see it. A small glimpse of true and genuine fear. Antigone's eyes widen for a fraction of a second before she schools her expression back into that flat, unthreatening politeness that she always puts on while handling the headache that is council meetings. And uh, a fake smile I, uh, that looks very real uh, ekes across her face as she turns to the rest of the council and says, so please, rest assured that the witness sees everything, and believe me, we would have told you if we saw the devil's death. Surely he's just, like I said, running about the fringe or doing God knows what, as is the devil's right. <laughs> he is a rather mercurial god, isn't he? And this is Nightingale, who, despite the rather somber mood and tone in the council hall, seems unbothered. Their champion, Zyrdemos, has given them a flask of an unknown liquid at this point, and they seem to be swigging it with <laughs> little care in the world, as you, King Morius, and Mix Harpbloom seem to be waging some kind of three-way staring war. Yeah, Antigone's nose wrinkles, because I think she can smell the flask, because she's right next to mm -hmm. Professor Nightingale. She leans away ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. In response to you, Pillandar says... The judge believes it so. However, as the god of justice and punishment, we cannot let this slight go unchecked. It is of the utmost importance that the devil is found sooner than later. He is, despite his mercurial nature, as you point out, Professor Nightingale, an important part of the Cradle's ecosystem. He is a carrion eater devouring lost souls and hungry ghosts. Without him, as we've seen, the dead zones have been growing more and more volatile. Ghosts have been ravaging even mortals, and not just at the fringes. Every day they eke closer and closer to the citadel. At this, Dido speaks up, Miss Ellen Fax, leaning across the table so that her a bosom, one could say, <laughs> <laughs> Antigone looks like offended, not just like eyes rolling, but like actually personally offended when Dido's considerable cleavage spills over the marble top of the council table. Yeah, like the, the fine little beads of sweat glitter against her skin from this irradiated sun, right? Oh my god. And she tosses that huge mane of golden curls and says, well, certainly we could come to some kind of negotiation, couldn't we? None of the other major arcana gods would be able to pick up the slack for the devil. And at that, Pontifilios answers, Absolutely not. The hungers of gods are sacred. To move against their own nature would be to kill them. They would get sick and die and we'd have even more problems on our hands in that case. Pontifilius is right. We can't just ask one of our own deities to eat lost souls for us. It's it's not, it's not possible. We've all heard of what happens to gods that eat outside their own hungers. They get sick and they perish. And we are caretakers of our six. If we were to willingly throw them toward hungers that are not their nature, 
what are we even doing here? It was merely a suggestion, Lady Antigone. Please. I mean no offense to the witness nor the hierophant. I simply believe that some manner of negotiation is necessary when dealing with difficult problems. After all, we've heard little from death or the other wandering gods, whose domains bridge that of lost souls and ghosts, no? Well, well, yes, death is hard to get a hold of. They're not exactly a god you can just pray to and expect to show up on our doorstep. Things are a lot more complicated than that, Miss Ellenfax. Matters of faith are nuanced. Perhaps more nuanced than matters you're used to. <laughs> well, I promise the nuance of my checkbooks is a sight to see. Perhaps the 18th wonder of the world. Antigone narrows her eyes at that. I think it's very obvious to everyone that she and Dido do not get along because they're so different in personality and in approach, right? Mm -hmm. Just to your left, Professor Nightingale seems to be feeding off of this tension. The smile <laughs> on their face has turned from that of a curious cat playing with its food to a wicked, jagged, knife-like smile that seems to break across their face as they look between you and Dido back and forth, waiting for first blood to be spilled. And Antigone is willing to spill it. She goes on to say, I'm sure we have all heard the teaching that Pontiff Philios loves to lecture us about, as is his right, his duty, and his privilege, that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy woman to enter the kingdom of the above. <laughs> you may reside on the 199th floor of this great citadel, Lady Antigone, but might I remind you that you sit in the sixth seat of the council. At that, Antigone's jaw sets a little bit as she cocks her head to the side looking at Dido. Because yes, after all, even though this is a circle, the seats are arranged in order of power. So that throne-like seat that King Morius is in isn't just for show because he's a dick. I mean, it is, and he is. Uh, but it's because he is in the literal big seat of the council because he won or rather his champion won the latest tournament, which is of course an event that all the champions partake in and depending on the rankings of the tournament, that determines how much power each, each seat of council has. And unfortunately, the previous tournament, the above took last place. Though Antigone does assuage herself a consolation prize that she had met Eos after the latest tournament occurred. So it was not Eos who had failed her, but her previous champion. Of course. But we must not look too far back into the past, as the daggers on everyone's tongues here continue to lash out. And it's King Morius who speaks up now. All of this said, we do need to figure out what exactly to do about the devil who will go on this little fetch quest to find him and bring him to the judge, as you've mentioned, Pilandar. Mix heart bloom. Yeah, it's whatever, whatever. I believe that it is Lady Antigone's purview to be the eyes of the cradle. Certainly you have some knowledge you can share with us, Lady Antigone, and certainly you are best equipped to figure out exactly where the devil has gone. Uh, certainly planning for your pilgrimage hasn't left you too busy to attend to the affairs of the cradle, has it? Uh, King Morius, I... Well, well, it is plain how important this fetch quest, as you put it, is. After all... The devil is not just a carrion eater, he is the cleanup crew. Without him, well, 
souls wouldn't go anywhere. They would just propagate and propagate and propagate until the world of the living was subsumed by the tides of the dead. So yes, please don't misunderstand what I say next as a laziness or a refusal of my duty. I, I know just how important this quest is. But with all due respect, King Morius and all of my esteemed colleagues on the council, wouldn't it make more sense if someone more, say, resourced were to take on this mission, like Miss Dido Ellen Fax, or someone perhaps with an invention that could help find the devil expediently, like Professor Nightingale, or even perhaps the instrument of the judge themselves, Mix Heartbloom? Oh, hell no, you are absolutely not dragging me into this, Antigone, <laughs> says Gail from behind you, who just kind of puts their feet on the floor, crosses them, and looks at you sideways out of the corner of their eye. You're literally the witness. Finding things is like your entire thing. Well, Professor Nightingale, you are an instrument of invention, are you not? Is this challenge not intellectually stimulating for you? To be frank with you, no, it's not. I have plenty of other things to do, and if you need me to and if you need me to fix you with some actual technology to be able to get to where you need to go, I'd be happy to do so, as my resources have been recently buoyed by the good graces of our friend, Miss Dido Ellenfax. And they turn to look at Dido. Ah, yes. The trade agreement. Yes, I'd heard about that. Well, <laughs> busying yourself with... And she trails off, looking expectantly at Gale. You wouldn't get it. Uh-huh. Well, Miss Ellenfax, as deep as your pockets are and as lavish as your coffers, you would certainly have the resources to embark upon this quest and finish it in time for dinner. <laughs> of course. The only thing is, Lady Antigone, the devil has a debt that cannot go unpaid, of course, but I have ledgers that cannot go unchecked. You are the only one here who has no earthly district to rule over. I have the district of the above, which few in number we may be, but our domain is important nonetheless. There are matters I must attend to as well. For instance, the pilgrimage. Might I remind the council the importance of the cleansing ritual? Uh, yes, yes, the cleansing ritual is quite important, Lady Antigone, but... Thank you, Pontifilios. I knew you would understand. But I am quite aware that you must have priests or even a clerk who'd be able to do such a ritual. It is quite important, but a journey to the northern dead zones will take quite some time. This is a matter that cannot go unchecked. And and his face kind of turns in a wide arc to look at King Morius. I do agree that the speaker of the witness would likely have far more ease at this task than any of us. Antigone looks betrayed. This terrible, horrible, stinky old man, uh, Pontifilios, for, for whatever reason, tends to like her. Uh, and she's aware that he's an ally. They're both very faithful. They're perhaps the most devout of any member of the Six. So they have, they do share that common ground. So she looks stricken for a moment as Pontifilios apparently seems to turn against her. And then her eyes fall on King Morius. So, that's what everyone was talking about before I made my entrance due to pious duties I had to attend to. Throwing me alone to the sharks then, I see. <laughs> Lady Antigone, Lady Antigone, how you joke, how you joke. Oh, if I wanted to throw you to the sharks, you'd be dead already. 
at that. Eos is the only champion this entire time who takes a step forward. Like, stepping out of, like, the half step behind in the shadows that all of the champions reside in. Uh, they're, like, unmoving statues standing behind their speaker's chairs. And now Eos steps forward. And her hand starts to reach up toward the hilt of her greatsword, and Antigone raises a hand very quickly, a single gesture, a palm flung upward, and Eos freezes. And Antigone says, without looking backward at Eos, Champion Eos, you forget your place. Behind King Morius III, Sir Sloan Iscariot moves too. As soon as Eos takes a step, her hand grips that hilt of her longsword even harder and the arm holding the buckler raises a fraction of an inch and those unblinking eyes fix on Eos behind you. And King Morius laughs, kind of waving his hand back and forth. <laughs> oh, how delightful it is to see your little um, champion so ready and reticent. Keep that for the tournament coming up now, shall we? Let's not get too excited or ahead of ourselves. Lady Antigone, I don't need to threaten. I simply only speak the truth. The truth that we all know based on where we sit in this very council hall. Now, we can leave it to a vote if we really must, but truly, it's a great honor to go and search for the devil. You'd be doing the entire cradle a great honor, and I'm sure whatever pilgrimage it is you have to go to can be taken care of by someone else. Antigone sets her jaw once more as Eos like steps back into the shadows and reluctantly lowers an arm. And she says, this pilgrimage is not just some arbitrary ritual to be performed by some arbitrary servant of the witness, a scribe or a secretary. It, it, it needs to be me. It needs to be the speaker. Lady Antigone, we are all quite familiar with the, the ritual to cleanse the eyes of the witness. Why, we all have our own cleansing rituals for our own gods. They happen so regularly, we are quite aware that not every speaker has to perform them. I know you take your job very seriously, but there are more serious matters to attend to at this point. And perhaps you do not take your job seriously enough when it comes to attending to the spokes of the Wheel of Fortune. At that, Dido's smile falters half an inch. <laughs> I will leave that insult up to a lack of discretion given your personal feelings, of which we are all aware about this journey. Excuse me? Lady Antigone, it does not befit you, as the speaker of knowledge and history, to forget your own. We are all quite aware of the anniversary of the death of your parents. Silence. I think, I think silence falls over the council meeting because indeed, this has been the elephant in the room. All of them have been tiptoeing around ever since Antigone ascended to the role of speakerhood. No one has ever addressed it directly and so plainly and obviously and violently as Dido did just now. It's like a border has been crossed that has not been crossed before. And now that it's been crossed, like, we don't know where it's going to go, right? Like, we're, we're actually talking about it. And we never thought we were going to talk about it. Antigone fixes Dido with that unwavering stare of hers. And even though on the surface she looks like as cold and hard as ice and stone, on the inside is a completely different story. And she says in a perfectly controlled voice, 
I was not insulting you, Miss Ellen Fax. I was simply making an observation. That's what you say in your gambling circles, isn't it? You call him as you see him? And I know exactly when to call a bluff, Lady Antigone. I do not encourage you to bet against me. I do encourage you, Miss Ellen Fax, to keep my parents' titles out of your mouth. Now, now, now. And it's King Morius who now stands up from his throne, the scepter kind of wobbling around his knees. Let's all relax a little bit. Lady Antigone. Yes. Putting up such a fight like this is rather childish. Do we really need to put it to a vote? Okay, childish stung, not gonna lie. Childish stung and made Antigone very mad, but she keeps that controlled mask this entire time, turns her gaze back at King Morius. And she, and everyone in this room, knows that if it were put to a vote, Obviously, she'd be the one selected to go do this fetch quest, right? There's like no doubt about it. And the only purpose that a vote would serve would be to further humiliate her. So she says, with as much dignity as she can muster, That won't be necessary. The lines of fate are obvious to me now. I will assume the duties as Speaker of Above, track down the devil, and make sure he returns to his hunger. Antigone, would you like to use the mortal move, do as you're told? How dare you, C. Thomas? How <laughs> fucking dare you turn my own tools against me? Uh, yes, I would. So the mortal move, do as you're told, reads, When you do as you're told, say how you show submission and answer one. The GM will show you a glimpse of the true intentions of the room, in this case, then answer the other question. The two questions are, how are you rewarded? And what vulnerability do you reveal? Antigone shows submission by very slightly inclining her head and touching her chin to her collarbone. And then she raises her head again, and it's obvious that all the fight has kind of drained out of her. She's kind of taken blow after blow during this council meeting, um, socially, of course. And she kind of like slumps back into her chair Glances over at Professor Nightingale, glances over at Mix Heartbloom, glances over viciously at Dido, and then resentfully at Pontiff Philios, and finally back at Morius. I'll do it. And I think the question I want to answer is, what vulnerability do you reveal? Which is that, honestly, as mean as the words were coming out of King Morius and Miss Ellen Fax's mouth, they weren't exactly wrong. They're right, actually. Anyone could do the cleansing ritual. Like, any servant, any scribe who can read, basically. You just have to, like, read off of a set of papers and then do the thing. Like, it's not hard. It just takes a lot of time. Mm. The, and the real reason why Antigone was so, like, obstinate about being the one to personally go on this pilgrimage every year, every year, every year, every year is because it is not just the day that the cleansing ritual falls upon. It also happens to coincide with the anniversary of her family's death and the location of their death, too, in the northern dead zones. So it's a way for her to cleanse the eyes of the witness and also to pay her respects to her parents' graves, unmarked and unattended as they usually are every other day of the year. And I think this is the first time since her parents have died that she will not be making this pilgrimage. So that's a big blow. Mm. I will now answer the question, how are you rewarded? 
as for the first time since this bickering, bickering is a rather gentle way to put it, this vicious back and forth began, Mix Pillandar Heartbloom speaks up once again, and Z says, I will personally attend to the ritual to cleanse the eyes of the witness for you, Lady Antigone, if that is to your liking. And in that moment, you know, Pillandar is going out on a limb here. Speakers doing rituals for gods that are not their own is very uncommon. But there's something in the gaze that Pillandar fixes you with, where you can see that childhood friend glimmering behind this wraith-like ghost of a person that you once knew a long time ago. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, Antigone looks askance at Pillandar, like there's surprise and even shock etched in her face plainly for a second, then she schools it back into that placid friendliness and politeness. Mix heart bloom. <laughs> I couldn't possibly ask you to step away from the denizens of the below. I find it would be a fruitful use of justice in this case. Well, if you insist the ritual must be done by a speaker, then I shall enact it to the best of my will, to the best of my ability. My sympathies to any fool that tries to sway the axe from its course. Very well. If you insist, then I will gratefully accept. And I think there's like an unspoken understanding transmitted between these two childhood friends that Pillandar won't just be going for the cleansing ritual. They'll be there to do what Antigone won't be able to, which is to pay respects to their parents' shrines. Mm-hmm. And cutting in now, Professor Nightingale says, Okay, now that we finally got that out of the way, can we actually get into some details here? Because I have a hot date in like three and a half minutes and I would really prefer not to be late. Chop chop, shall we? Thank you for that much needed segue, Professor Nightingale. Yes, Mix Heartbloom, King Morius, are there any more details you can furnish me with or shall I be cast out to the cradle to search for the devil from Quadrant One? We do have some preliminary evidence to share with you today. The devil was last seen in a mining town on the outskirts of the Swords District, Iron 42. Unfortunately, we don't know much more beyond that. A Swords District, you say? And Antigone's eyes linger resentfully on King Morius. It's way past the point now, but she knew that this information was kept from her uh, until this very moment, until after she was cajoled into taking it, because it's his goddamn job. It's his district. Why the hell isn't he doing this? But anyway, that's beside the point now. King Morius, that's your purview, is it not? What can you tell me of Iron 42? <laughs> well, based on the name, it's a mining town, and based on the number, probably close to the fringe, but not quite on the border. If I had to hazard an educated guess, I'd say it's a pit town. A pit town? King Morius jabs this kind of large finger down hard into the marble straight downward and taps several times. Ah, uh, ah, uh, yes, of course, I see. Well, I assume this Iron 42 doesn't venture so far beneath the earth as to encroach upon your domain, Mixheartbloom? You'd have to drill deeper than bone to reach the below, my ladyship. 
King Morius, it does not elude me that you appear woefully uninformed about a town under your direct report. My lady, if I were intimately involved in the day-to-day operations of every single town under sword's control, I wouldn't have time to breathe. Though given the scope of your duties, I am not surprised you would ask such a question. Enlighten me? Lady Antigone, it is no secret to myself or any of the other speakers that the above's domain is not entirely earthly. You do not debase yourself with the thankless task of ruling over dozens of townships, collecting tithes from thousands of mortals or gods alike. I mean, what a bore, am I right? Instead, you stay up in your ivory garden and pray, watch, you see everything. You've no kingdom to lord over, that's for sure. Uh, That's not what drives you, and that's perfectly respectable, right, Pontifilios? Perfectly respectable. We all have our place in the grand design, and yours is alone and landless. Antigone's jaw clenches once more. The way King Morius put it was extremely condescending and very politically charged, but on paper, he's not exactly wrong. The above is a special domain, unlike the rest of the six districts. Even the below has denizens that it rules over, right? Prisoners, usually, uh, people sent down there for punishment and judgment. The above does not. It's kind of just her and just Eos and a couple of like random attendants and servants and scribes and holy folk, right? They don't really have towns that they rule over or anything like that. And that kind of makes their political power a little bit smaller than the rest of the six. Mm. Antigone has always been aware of this. The above, for all of their scope of domain, like they watch over all of the domains, right? And they're kind of like the keeper of of memory and past and history, but they don't have any landed resources or a tangible leverage. Mm-hmm. And Antigone goes on to say with a fist, I think clenched atop the marble counter, but that's the only sign of any distress. Like the rest of her body looks completely relaxed. Yes, of course, King Morius, what an astute observation. Unfortunately, not all of us can acquire our titles through such rigorous and awe-inspiring means as inheritance, King Morius III. (coughs) From beside you, Professor Nightingale chokes on whatever drink that they were sipping down as they had already started to get up and he was almost, he was like getting ready to go, right? But he tr- he chokes on whatever cyber whiskey that they had invented that day to try. Cyber whiskey? I don't know, I'm vibing. Not the designer drugs. Yeah, the, de- <laughs> the, designer, the designer drink that they had chosen for this particular day. And all across the table, you can see even Dido cracks a small smile that she very quickly hides behind a hand watching you take King Morius down a peg or two. Pontifilios averts their gaze from such a blatant display of what is rather correct, but perhaps not entirely holy. Pilindar, Pilindar's face doesn't change for all it's worth, but you get the feeling that Z enjoyed the jab. <laughs> King Morius, however, kind of rises up out of his throne, chortling a little. <laughs> Yes, well, at least I have a title and a family to have followed me down this historic path. Of course, King Morius. And I hope, against all hope, 
that no tragedy befalls your family as commonly befalls others in the cradle. And she looks at King Morius hard for a second before rising. Eos pulls that seat out from behind her in perfect concert as, as she rises, like Eos is reading her body language before Antigone even does anything. And the two of them start to make their ways to the big double oak doors of the council. Room, uh, her hair shining and warm under the light of the desiccated sun that is pouring through this open ceiling. And she pauses right at the threshold as though thinking of something, right? Remembering something like, like an aside comes to her. Right? Just, just, just coincidentally, she pauses there and kind of throws over her shoulder. Oh, yes. And one last thing. I may be alone at the top, but that does mean the rest of you are beneath me. Antigone, your journey to Iron 42 takes 12 days and 12 nights by carriage. Eos drives the horses and you ride in the back. The carriage itself is comfortable and cushy like all things from the Citadel. A sturdy wagon painted white with four strong wheels and walls of latticed wood. The roof is wood as well with coiling golden eaves and motifs of golden eyes dappled on top. This is certainly not the first time you've left the Citadel, but each time you pass through those gilded gold gates and into the surrounding districts, it does seem a bit like you've been plunged into a completely different world. This is the cradle you can see from the top of your agonizingly beautiful tower, but it is not one you often walk within. The carriage serves as a barrier between you and the oil-sputtering heavy loader trucks packed with lumber, guns, ammunition, grain, livestock that circulate the passages between the districts like veins in a heart. As you continue the journey farther and farther out, the less you see of other travelers, traders, sword caravans, even supply trains become few and far between. In this world, it's just you and Eos in your carriage and the witness above who sees it all. So what kind of dynamic do we see between Antigone and Eos as these days of travel pass by? The dynamic between Antigone and Eos is easy, it is comfortable, it is intimate, and at times it is even vulnerable. Eos sits at the front of the carriage, holding onto the reins that drive the horses, while Antigone sits in the back of the carriage, either perusing the books she's brought along for entertainment, or gazing out the window at the cradle flitting past her, or praying. Right, she reads, she witnesses, and she prays. Those are the three main action verbs that Antigone does, while Eos drives, protects, and watches as well. And I think there's one particular moment, maybe as the carriage is traveling over an abandoned overpass, like an abandoned highway, looking over this huge swath of post-apocalyptic city, where Eos breaks a kind of comfortable silence between the two of them to say, My ladyship, it's been a few days since we left the citadel. It is but a speck of a needle in the horizon behind us. I do not mean to overstep, but... Eos, you could never overstep. Ask your question. My ladyship, although Mix Harpbloom will be attending to the pilgrimage, I am sure with as much dignity, faith, and reverence as you yourself would have, this will still be the first time since... Well, since it happened, that you won't be there. I just wanted to know how you were doing. 
Antigone closes the book that she was perusing and tucks it onto the bench beside her. She gazes out at the opposite window, watching pile-ups of vehicles pass by, watching tall, broad oak leaves flutter past from trees that have grown themselves out of cracked concrete. And she says, You know, it's interesting, Eos. I've been thinking to myself where I would be in the northern dead zones by now. Three days out, two days out, one day out, and I... I've just been torturing myself with the knowledge. I'm not there. I won't be there. And maybe... Maybe it's for the best. My ladyship? Eos, it's been twelve years. I... I honor them, of course. I venerate their memory. (laughs) I do my best to pass on my reverence and my worship and my sacrifice to them, but I... I can't help but feel every time I embark upon the cleansing that I am a little bit betraying my god. My lady, the love you hold for your family departed is never a betrayal to your god. Eos, I'm not sure that's true. I don't think that's how it works for me. I don't think I get to have that. And, and, before you say anything else, Eos, it's fine. Maybe this is what was meant to be. Maybe this little fetch quest is a sign that I... I need to move on. Antigone, would you like to use the mortal move connect with someone? How dare you? When you try to connect with someone, tell them something intimate and answer one. The GM, me, will reveal a fragment of their pain, then answer the other. How fucking dare you, part three? These weapons are flourishing. Uh, yes, I would love to use that move. And the intimate thing... I feel like Antigone has already been intimate, but I can go further. Go ahead. I think Eos turns her head, right? Like, looks over her shoulder at Antigone with a brow nodded in concern. And Eos is shocked to see that there are tears brimming in Antigone's eyes. And Eos actually pulls the horses to a stop. Antigone says to the opposite window, not to Eos. I mean, (laughs) if we want to talk betrayal, then... They were the ones who did it. They, I was just, I was just serving him. I was just doing everything I could to serve him. And, and that has to be for something, Eos. What I did, what happened, has to have been for something. Otherwise, what is the point of all of this? What is the point of any of this? All I have is my faith. All I have is my faith. And that has to be enough. Which question would you like to answer? What common ground do we share? Or what still divides us? I would like to answer what common ground do we share. As soon as Antigone is done, Eos gets off the carriage, walks round the back, opens the back of the carriage, comes inside, is so big that like the entire wagon kind of uh, groans and tilts a bit. Uh, Antigone looks up and goes, Eos, what are you... But it's too late. Eos has draped an arm around her shoulder and has pulled Antigone in, right? The cape going around her, pulling Antigone's face into like the breastplate of her armor. And Antigone like stiffens, eyes widen. She breathes in Eos' scent, the scent of cedar wood and blade polish and charcoal. 
And Eo says, My ladyship, that's simply not true. You always have me to. Hmm. So I will now answer what still divides us. Antigone, as Eos puts this arm around you, pulls you in, says these words, you always have me. There's a small understanding. Your true sight, one could say. This ability to see all in its truth. The entire cradle. Every person. There is no such thing as a mystery when you look at it. And you know that when Eos speaks of themselves, they do not speak of themselves in the way that you want them. Eos does not think highly of themselves to be able to offer what it is that you truly desire deep down. Mm. The kind of intimacy that you crave will always be at least at arm's length because Eos does not think herself worthy. Yeah, fuck. Oh, that's tragic. But it's true. Because what Antigone craves deep down, that I'm not even sure she's completely aware of herself, but she understands on a visceral and instinctive level, is an equal companion. And Eos, Eos, I think, only understands herself in relationship to Antigone. Not alone. And as this moment fades away into the dying light of a dying god. We find ourselves here. Now. In the filthiest little room that you've ever been in, Antigone. Your preliminary investigations across Iron 42 had yielded a tight-lipped population. To their credit, the denizens of this pit town had closed ranks instantly as soon as a citadel outsider came sniffing. But to your credit, Antigone, you are the speaker of knowledge, and truth cannot elude you. Through power, magic, and force, you now find yourself facing down an old woman whose eyes grow to the size of saucers when she answers the door. She sets a chipped mug of warm water in front of you and asks you to wait. The old woman totters down a small hallway so narrow you're not sure if Eos would be able to fit through it in her armor. The old woman raps on a door, and after a few moments of quick, quiet conversation, someone on the other side yanks the door open, smashing it against the opposite wall. Smoke comes curling from this interior room, forming a halo of hazy light behind this new figure. You glimpse a mess of dark brown hair, shaved haphazardly on the sides and streaked with white, a torn, messy tunic tucked into a cloth belt with singed ends, a pair of twin knives collected by a length of chain coiled at the hip. A pair of mismatched eyes, storm gray and gleaming, glittering red. Antigone, speaker of the above, servant of the witness. What is the first thing you say to the god killer? Hello, you must be Rune. I am Antigone, Speaker of the Witness, and I am looking for the devil. Godkiller First Blood is performed by Connie Chong and C. Thomas. Follow Connie on Twitter and TikTok at ByConnieChong, and C on Twitter at CPlaysRPG. To play your very own campaign of Godkiller and support our show, pre-order Godkiller First Blood Edition on itch.io today.
Transplaner RPG is made possible by your Patreon contributions and sponsors who believe in our mission to tell great stories and lift up our community. Sponsors like ExplainTrade.com. Explain Trade is a negotiation skills consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines on Twitter, has asked us to say, and I quote, please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy giving all his money to trans and queer art and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and heed his words. Sign up for our Patreon today at patreon.com slash transplanerrpg. First Blood is also sponsored by Start Playing Games, the largest online platform for players to find tabletop role-playing campaigns of your very own. Join a table that fits your schedule today at startplaying.games. We are also sponsored by Magpie Games, the independent TTRPG publisher behind such incredible works as Masks A New Generation, Avatar Legends, Urban Shadows, Bluebeard's Bride, and much, much more. Check out their amazing selection of Powered by the Apocalypse games at magpiegames.com. Finally, we're proud to be sponsored by Roll. Roll is an online RPG platform that serves as a video-first alternative to complex virtual tabletops. Build, modify, and play your very own games of Godkiller on Roll today at playroll.com.